If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Welcome to the show, and thank you for joining me. But before we start, I'd like to say thank you. Your support and generosity are greatly appreciated. And if you'd like to support us even further, please visit us at patreon.com slash paranormalmysteries or at buymeacoffee.com slash paranormal, where you can make a one-time donation. Your support in any form makes the show possible. And if you've encountered the paranormal and would like to share your story, please email me at paranormalmysteriespodcast at gmail.com. All experiences, no matter how big or small, are always welcome. And now, please join me as we take a journey into the world of paranormal mysteries. Welcome to the show once again, and as always, I'm your host, Nick Ryan. I'd like to begin today with a fairly short but extremely odd story that I came across involving an abduction that took place in Brazil in 1978. This account can be found in multiple places online, but the two sources that I referenced for this story are Mysterious Universe and Think About It Docs, both of which can be found in the show notes. And here is the account. In March of 1978, a fisherman was out by a river in the state of Maranhão, Brazil, when his concentration was broken by screams from the nearby jungle. Alarmed, the fisherman stopped what he was doing and ventured into the thick, murky underbrush toward the desperate cries, until he came to a teenage boy lying there on the ground. The boy seemed to be in rough shape, unable to move, and even when asked who he was, he could only respond with gurgled cries of pain. Whoever this boy was, he seemed to be in a sort of daze, and considering there was blood coming from his mouth, the fisherman assumed that he had been attacked by someone. When authorities arrived, the boy was taken to the hospital, and it was found that he had four missing teeth, along with other teeth that were jagged and broken. He had patches of hair that appeared to have been singed off, some kind of red marks like sunburns around his ears, and by the time doctors looked at him, he was in some sort of unresponsive and catatonic state. He was then moved to a more modern facility, and during most of that time, he had to be fed intravenously and catheterized. Altogether, at least eight doctors examined him, and only after a few days did he begin to come out of his stupor. When he did, he had quite a bizarre tale to tell, and so would begin one of the weirdest alien abduction accounts that Brazil has ever seen. It started as a normal day for 16-year-old Luis Carlos Serra, who in March of 1978, who was out in the wilds near his home in the village of Penalva, collecting guava fruit for his family. The area was covered in thick jungle, but he had been out there many times before, and for Luis, it was a rather normal day, until things began to take a turn for the strange. It began with a loud noise like a siren that boomed out to reverberate among the trees. 
This was not a normal sound of the jungle, obviously not natural, and at first, Lewis thought that it might have been an aircraft overhead, but when he looked up, it would prove to be no normal airplane. When Lewis peered up through the canopy of trees stretching far above, he felt nearly blinded by an intensely bright light. He couldn't see what the source of the light was, but it was so brilliant that it lit up the normally dim jungle floor. And as he stood there frightened and wondering what could possibly produce such a light, he suddenly found that he could not move his body. Lewis would claim that something had paralyzed him, and he fell to the ground unable to move or even cry out. As he laid there helpless, the light began to sort of congeal around him until he was enveloped by it, and that was when he felt his body lift off the forest floor and into the air, as if something were pulling him upwards. The now terrified boy continued his ascent, right up through the branches of the canopy and above the sea of jungle around him, and that's when he finally saw the source of the light. According to Lewis, hovering over the jungle was a large round object with a domed top and lined by windows along its sides, and it was towards this odd craft that he found himself floating. He would then claim that he was pulled towards the mysterious sphere and right through one of the windows until he was inside of it. He was then allegedly lowered to the floor, from which Lewis looked up to see three humanoid beings in metallic suits, and visitors standing around him, speaking in some unknown language. As he tried to comprehend what was going on, the craft began to move, and things would get even stranger still. Although his memory of the event would remain somewhat murky, he says that the craft went to a place that was dark and devoid of mountains, sky, stars, and even trees, just a vast expanse of some sort of strange tall grass, and nothing but blackness above. He was levitated back out of the craft and then set down upon a flat rock in a clearing, and he would say this, I was taken to a strange land with no trees and only with tall grass. I went out the window just as I had came in, with nothing supporting my back. I was still paralyzed. It was a strange place that I did not know. It seemed like a field, but no birds or sides. The grass was very high, about one meter. I did not see any house or building. I could not see the sky. There were no trees or stars. It was very dark. I was still paralyzed. Those people approached me and put a tube in my nose, but it did not hurt. Then they put a transparent ball in my mouth and a liquid down my throat too fast. I fell asleep and did not know what happened later. I woke up in the bush. It would not be until three days later when he would be found there by that fisherman, but it would turn out that there had been an intensive search effort to locate the boy carried out by the villagers. The incident would capture the attention of UFO researcher and journalist Bob Pratt, who would go to the region to interview Lewis and other locals about what had happened, also finding out that there had been several other sightings of UFOs in the area at the time. Pratt would also interview medical personnel who had examined the boy, including a neurologist and two psychiatrists, and he even spoke with the town's mayor, none of who had any rational explanation for his condition when he was found. Rather curiously, according to the researcher Albert Rosales, in August of 1978, there was a sighting of three glowing humanoids in silver coveralls and round, translucent helmets in a field near Penalva although what connection this had to Lewis's case remains unknown. It is hard to know what to make of this utterly bizarre case. 
Investigators who have looked into this deem Lewis to be a perfectly rational and calm witness who has never deviated from his initial story. There is nothing about him that suggests he would simply fabricate such a tale, and no reason to suspect that he has ever gained anything from it. There are also the corroborating reports of other strangeness in the area. But for now, the strange case of Luis Carlos Serra remains an intriguing mystery that sees no concrete conclusion in sight. For many, our next topic needs no introduction, but it's a story that sometimes gets pushed aside and overshadowed by some of the more mainstream abduction cases. I've always heard bits and pieces of this encounter being told, and tonight I'd like to bring you the story of the Carl Higdon abduction. Colorado and Wyoming, arguably two of the most beautiful destinations within the United States, and both of which are home to the Medicine Bow National Forest. Situated in northern Colorado and spilling over into southern Wyoming, Medicine Bow National Forest is actually a combination of three separate areas, spanning over two million acres. In 1995, Medicine Bow National Forest, Route National Forest, and Thunder Basin National Grassland were combined into what is now known as the Medicine Bow Route National Forest and is home to a variety of scenic wilderness and wildlife making it a sought-after destination for both hiking and hunting. But in the fall of 1974, this national forest was the location of one of the strangest alien encounters ever told, and it remains a mystery even to this day. To everyone that knew him, 41-year-old oil well driller, husband and father of four, Carl Higdon, was not a man prone to flights of fancy, but on the autumn afternoon of October 25, 1974, he had a close encounter with a bizarre being who would not only test the limits of his imagination, but quite literally take him on the ride of his life. Like many Americans in the 1970s, the hard-working Carl Higdon was hit hard by the recession. As food prices crept even higher, Higdon decided that he would have to hunt in order to feed his family and stock their icebox with enough meat to get them through the harsh Wyoming winter that was just around the corner and it would be during one such expedition that Higdon would go from being the hunter to becoming the hunted. The day began like any other. Higdon awoke and was getting ready for his second shift of work that day at the A.M. Wells Service Company in Riverton when his telephone rang. After working his way up through the company for the better part of 20 years, Higdon was now the foreman, and therefore it fell to him to take sick calls from his crew. He describes the situation. I was all set to leave for work when one of my key men phoned me to tell me that he was sick, and realizing that nothing could be accomplished with him at home, I too decided to take the day off. After deciding not to go into work, Higdon decided to utilize his unexpectedly free afternoon by using it to hunt for elk. With his plan in place, the oil man packed his gear into his company pickup and began heading towards McCarthy Canyon in nearby Carbon County. It was then that a random act of kindness would forever change his destiny. While cruising towards McCarthy Canyon, Higdon spied a pair of stranded motorists working on their broken-down van. The Good Samaritan pulled over and helped them repair their vehicle, and during the course of their conversation, the duo revealed that they were also hunters, and they knew of a place where there was much more game than Higdon's original destination. And Higdon would say this, I pulled in front of them and helped them, 
During our chat, they told me that the hunting was much better further back in a remote section of the Medicine Bow National Forest. Higdon thanked his fellow hunters, and without delay, decided to change his course and began driving toward the northern region of Medicine Bow National Forest, which is located just 40 miles south of his home in Rawlings. Higdon was an experienced hunter, but he had not yet been to such a forest, and it turned out to be a remote and uninhabited area, with no signs of human presence. Higdon arrived at the forest late in the afternoon, and once there, he was surprised to bump into an old buddy, and Higdon would say this, Around four o'clock, I parked my two-wheel drive on a knoll. An old friend, Gary Eaton, walked over to where I had stopped, and together we surveyed the area. After a few minutes, Gary told me that he was going on higher up into the forest, and jokingly he suggested that he might scare down some elk for me. Higdon and his friend then separated, at which point the hunter pulled out his brand new rifle and loaded it. Higdon then decided to explore an area that was concealed behind a hill and set off, never imagining what would happen next. Higdon walked for a few minutes, and then out of the corner of his eye, he caught a flash of movement. It was exactly what he had come for, a small herd of elk. Higdon silently raised his rifle, put his eye to the sight, and took aim at the largest male. I walked maybe five minutes until I came to a rise in the ground. Down below in a clearing were five elk, huddled closely together. From my vantage point, several hundred yards away, I could see that one of them was a really outstanding animal. I lined him up in my telescopic sight and fired my gun. It was a magnum rifle, and it can give your shoulder a mean whack if you're not careful. As soon as Higdon pulled the trigger of his rifle, he was astounded by the fact that there was no kickback from the rifle. But what was even more perplexing was the fact that the detonation was absolutely silent. In fact, according to Higdon, it was as if the entire world had fallen still. As if all of that was not strange enough, for the first time in his life, Higdon claimed that he was actually able to watch as the bullet left the barrel of his rifle, and he watched it soar forward so slowly that it looked as if it were traveling through a wall of invisible jello. Higdon later swore that he watched the bullet glide about 50 feet before it plummeted to the snow-covered ground before him. I couldn't believe my senses. Instead of a powerful blast, the 7mm bullet left the gun's barrel noiselessly and in slow motion. It floated like a butterfly, finally falling to the ground about 50 feet from where I stood. I was awestruck. I froze. All around me there was a painful silence. Not a chirping bird or the rustling of leaves on nearby trees could be heard. The only sensation I could detect was a tingling feeling which crawled up my spine. This was similar to the feeling that you get before a fierce thunderstorm, when the air is full of static electricity. Still immersed in the eerie static-charged silence, Higdon cautiously retrieved the bullet and inspected it closely. The lead portion of the 7mm had disappeared, and only the oddly misshapen case remained. He placed the bullet into his pocket and took a few cautious steps forward. That was when the deathly silence surrounding him was abruptly broken by the sound of a twig snapping. Higdon spun around and was confronted by a sight that he instantly knew was not of this world. Turning to my left, I saw a man standing there. At first, I thought he was just another hunter, so I lowered my gun. Then he moved out of the shadows, into the light, and I immediately realized that something was terribly wrong. 
My heart skipped a beat, and my knees were shaking so badly that I could hardly stand. I thought, hell, I should have stayed in McCarthy Canyon, like I had originally planned. Standing before the trembling hunter was what appeared to be a humanoid figure, wearing a skin-tight, black, one-piece outfit that Higdon claimed was similar to a wetsuit that scuba divers would wear. Atop the suit was a pair of harness-like straps that crisscrossed its chest, and it was wearing a metallic belt, adorned with a large yellow six-pointed star. Below the star was an insignia that Higdon could not identify. Higdon would then describe the strange entity in detail. It was definitely a male. The visitor had no detectable ears. His eyes were small and lacked eyebrows. The dome of his skull was covered with the coarsest hair imaginable. It looked as if he had straw growing out of his head. He was definitely man-like in height. I'd estimate that he stood well over six feet and weighed around 180 pounds. This was definitely no ghost. Good lord, he was flesh and blood. Amen. Higdon would go on to describe this creature's oddly upsetting facial features, including a lipless, slit-like mouth that concealed three exceptionally large teeth on the top and bottom, a pair of antennas, and most alarmingly to Higdon, a face that blended directly into its neck. Higdon then continued his disturbing description of this alleged alien. Personally, it took getting used to in order for me to look at him without getting a queasy feeling in the pit of my stomach. No chin was visible. His face just seemed to blend right into his throat. He had no jawbone. Stranger still was the fact that this long-armed, bow-legged, jaundice-skinned creature had a pointy, almost drill-bit-like appendage sticking out of its wrist where its right hand should have been. And from what he could tell, the being had no left hand. At this point, the being slowly approached the terrified Higdon and did something completely unexpected. It asked him, How you doing? The bewildered hunter admitted that he was trying to stay calm when he weakly responded, Pretty good. At this point, the creature asked whether or not Higdon was hungry, but before he could respond, the creature sent a small clear cellophane package floating toward him. Higdon says, He waved a pointed object where his right hand should have been, and it levitated over to me. I opened the packet and found four pills inside. He told me in English to take one of them, that it would last for days. Now normally I didn't like taking pills, not even an aspirin, but something happened. It's as if I had no control over my actions, so I just swallowed one of them and put the other three in my jacket pocket. The strange jawless humanoid then introduced himself as also one, and that was when Higdon's gaze caught a strange box-like object catching the sun's rays in the clearing behind the creature. There, not far from us, was a transparent, cube-shaped object resting on the ground. To me, it looked like a huge Christmas package. You know, flat on all sides like a box. I couldn't see any landing gear or entrance. It was much smaller than any of our commercial or military planes. In fact, you're going to think I'm crazy, but this thing couldn't have been more than five feet high, seven feet long, and four and a half feet wide. Tiny is the word I think of to accurately describe its size. Apparently intrigued by the awe at which Higdon was staring at his ship, the alleged alien casually asked the hunter, Do you want to come along? Higdon, fully aware of the fact that he was in no position to refuse this being's request, shrugged his shoulders in agreement. 
It was at this point that time appeared to leap forward, as Higdon's next recollection was of being inside the cube-like craft. Before I was able to move a muscle, I found myself inside this contraption. It was instantaneous. How I was able to fit inside remains a riddle. They must have shrunk me. That's the only explanation that seems plausible. I wouldn't venture how they accomplished this feat. Also one just pointed, and we were where he wanted us. After Also one loaded his earthly guest into his tiny contraption, Higdon's mind began to get fuzzy, and he started to panic. My memory fails me here. I recall my head starting to reel, my hands sweating. Somehow the pill this fellow gave me must have deadened at least some of my senses. Otherwise, I'm positive I would have been crying, and perhaps even fainted. I may be strong, but I'm only human. At this point, Higdon noticed that all five of the elk that he had been stalking just moments before were also in the cube behind what he perceived to be an invisible barrier. The hunter marveled at the creature's ability to incapacitate the untamed animals. He said, I'm kind of fuzzy as to how they managed to contain such wild beasts. They were motionless, paralyzed. It would seem that the elk were not the only things paralyzed, because at virtually the same moment that he saw the frozen elk, Higdon claimed that he became abruptly aware of the fact that he was now sitting in a high-backed bucket seat, with what he described as restrictive bands securing his arms and legs. As we took off, I found myself strapped down to this seat, with my hands held fast to the armrests of the chair. My legs were similarly bound. Resisting an overwhelming urge to panic, Higdon watched in growing horror as another jawless, straw-haired being appeared out of nowhere. At which point, he and his genial partner strapped a bizarre, wired-smothered, football-helmet-like device to his head, prompting the hunter to state, I felt like the monster in an old Frankenstein movie. Higdon then observed a console with three different levers, which also one used to control the craft. The alien pointed his hand at the longest lever and seemed to move it telepathically. It was then that the peculiar transparent cube that Higdon would later describe as a flying boxcar took off. Also one manipulated the vehicle so that it hovered above Higdon's truck, and with the point of his conical hand, the vehicle vanished before his eyes. When we got above the trees, Also aimed his arm at my pickup, and it disappeared. Poof! Vanished into thin air. As if this ordeal weren't already quite outlandish enough, Higdon testified that just as suddenly as they left the ground, he abruptly spied an ominous, planet-like sphere shaped similar to a basketball through the clear floor of the box-like craft. It was a planet that he immediately knew was not Earth. The most memorable sight that Higdon recalled from his impromptu tour of this alien world was a colossal tower that loomed above the surface. He would later compare it to the Seattle Space Needle, but unlike its earthbound namesake, this huge umbrella-like structure was covered in rotating lights that were so blinding that they hurt his eyes. The hunter was also overwhelmed by a sound that he compared to an electronic razor buzzing. All around this tower were revolving patterns of multicolored lights, not unlike powerful spotlights. They were so intense that it was actually painful to keep my eyes open. These lights were so brilliant that I held my hands over my face as a protective shield. I vaguely remember shouting, Shut them off! They're burning me! I just couldn't tolerate them. Rather than comforting their frightened guest, 
the second drill-handed humanoid merely commented that they had similar problems on their home world, and insisted that, your son burns us too. It was then that the odd craft landed about 150 feet away from the platform at the base of the tower, at which point the second being vanished, just as abruptly as it had arrived. Through the transparent walls of the ship, Higdon saw what he claimed were five human beings, dressed in average Earth fashions, talking to one another. The individuals consisted of one brown-haired girl, who appeared to be about 11 years old, a blonde-haired girl who was just a few years older, and a teen couple who seemed to be about 17 or 18, and the group was rounded out by a man who seemed to be in his 50s. The people seemed to be talking to one another, and didn't notice Higdon. Also one, who had so cordially offered Higdon food pills and a ride around the cosmos, did not explain the presence of the other humans, but patiently explained to the anxious oil man that they had touched down on a planet that was 163,000 light miles from Earth. Higdon was quick to explain that the creature did not say light years, which to him indicated in no uncertain terms that to them the passage of time is different than it is to us. Also one then escorted Higdon into the lit-up tower. The pair ascended into an elevator, which deposited them into a room where the hunter was instructed to stand on a small platform. Higdon then noted that he and the alien never actually walked anywhere, but seemed to be floating just above the ground. While they hovered towards their destination, also one randomly explained that there were no fish on his planet, and that these finned critters were one of his people's favorite things about Earth. At this point, an odd device that Higdon described as resembling a glassy shield slipped out of the wall and paused in front of him. The shield was evidently some kind of medical device and scanned the man for almost five minutes before it disappeared back into the wall. Also one then informed him that he was going to return him to the spot where they had first met because the examination had shown that he did not suit their purpose. Higdon never knew what this potentially nefarious purpose was, but he would later speculate that he thought it had to do with a breeding program. Also one then led the oil man back to the elevator, and then down to the main door. With the same abruptness that he had felt earlier, Higdon realized that he and his alien companion were now back inside their clear cubicle, this time without the elk. Also one was admiring the human's rifle, and with a bit of regret, admitted that as much as he would like to, he would not be able to keep the primitive weapon as a souvenir. Also one telepathically handed the rifle back to Higdon, and then removed the food pills from his pocket, which dismayed the hunter, as it represented the only piece of concrete evidence that he had of this weird event. Once again, the alien pointed at the longest lever, and it was then that Higdon suffered another disorienting time jump. Higdon quickly realized that he was no longer hovering above an alien world, but that his alien comrade and his miraculous cube had seemingly instantaneously transported him back to Earth. He claimed that he saw his truck, which had been inexplicably transported some five miles from the glade where it had been. And Higdon would later say this, Since I was in a state of mental distress, this fact did not have any impact on me until sometime later. I know that I could never have driven over that impossible terrain, even if I had been physically capable of driving, which I most certainly was not. At this point, the kindly spaceman said to the hunter, We'll see you. The foreman was overwhelmed by a floating sensation, 
and without warning, found himself standing on the edge of a steep, rocky slope. The loose stones could not support his weight, and he suddenly found himself plummeting down the nine-foot decline, severely impacting against the hard ground and injuring his head, neck, and shoulder. The next thing the bewildered father of four recalled was staggering nearly three miles down an old dirt road, with his rifle in hand, freezing and in a state of nearly hysterical amnesia. I didn't know what had happened, who I was, or where I was for that matter. The only thing I could think of was to get out of there as fast as possible and find someone who could help me. Higdon was in such a state of shock that he walked past his pickup without even recognizing it, and when he realized that he was utterly alone on the dirt road, he then backtracked to the vehicle. There I stood, shivering, eyes filled with tears and not knowing my own identity. I saw a truck parked off the road between some trees and decided to crawl in it for shelter and to keep warm. I didn't realize the truck belonged to me. Huddled and trembling in shock, Higdon was startled by a feminine voice that suddenly crackled over the CB radio. There was a two-way set under the dashboard, so I picked up the mic and held it close to my mouth. I managed to blurt out that I was sick and lost and desperately in need of assistance. When the voice on the other end asked me where I was, I told him I had seen a sign down the road which read, North Boundary National Forest. This didn't seem to be much help, however, as there was absolutely no indication as to what forest the sign was referring to. A search party, led by a local sheriff and accompanied by Higdon's wife, Marjorie, had a lot of difficulty navigating the backwoods paths with their four-wheel drive vehicles and were unable to locate the panicky hunter until almost midnight. It was during this arduous trip that Higdon's wife and two other deputies claimed to have spied green, red, and white flashing lights in the sky, but they were too far away to discern their true origin. Later it would come out that two residents of Rollins, Wyoming, Don and Marilyn James, claimed to have observed an unusual radiance in the vicinity of Medicine Bow National Forest at the time, at the same time that the posse was making its way towards the missing hunter. Not long after, the baffled officers were astounded to find Higdon's two-wheel drive truck bumper deep in a mud-filled sinkhole in the center of a forest ravine that was impenetrable by motor vehicles. In fact, the conditions were so bad that the police were forced to make the final leg of the journey by foot. Even more perplexing was the fact that there were no tire tracks leading into the bog. The sheriff and his men could not comprehend how Higdon had managed to get his pickup stuck there. Judging from the circumstances, it would have had to have been dropped from above. It seemed to defy rational logic. As if things weren't bizarre enough, when they finally managed to pry the still-terrified Higdon from the truck, he was shrieking that they took my elk. He even failed to recognize his own wife. Deputies quickly packed the hunter and his wife into one of their vehicles, while the rest of the police were confronted with the task of how to get the seemingly impossibly trapped pickup out of the bog. Eventually, they created a sort of bridge with fallen trees, and finally managed to tow the truck from the shallow ravine and down the dirt paths that would have proven impossible to navigate with a two-wheel drive vehicle, and Higdon later described the situation. Using towing equipment, I was hauled out. They immediately took me to the nearest hospital, where I was placed under day and night observation. Not until the following evening did I begin to regain my memory and start to recall a few details of my ordeal. 
Sheriff's deputies wasted no time in transporting the frantic hunter and his wife to the Carbon County Memorial Hospital in Rollins, where he was admitted at 2.30 a.m. The doctors on staff noticed that his eyes were extremely bloodshot and that he seemed to be suffering from nervous exhaustion, not to mention the injuries he sustained during his fall into the gully. Following an extensive series of medical tests, the doctors noticed that despite Higdon's clearly injured and anxious condition, his blood was extraordinarily nutrient and vitamin-rich. Even more peculiar was the fact that in 1958, Higdon had been hospitalized after he came in contact with tuberculosis, and at the time, x-rays showed a significant amount of scarring on his lungs. But be that as it may, the x-rays that were taken following his bizarre journey to a different planet showed no scar tissue on his lungs, and his doctor, R.C. Tongo, even noted that some painful kidney stones which had been plaguing the hunter were no longer evident. The mystified Dr. Tongo even described Higdon's excellent health by saying, he's now in A1 super condition. Despite his new and improved organs, the still petrified oil man remained incoherent throughout the night, and according to most reports, did not manage to reclaim his memories until the following day when his daughter came to visit him. It was then that he told his wife, doctors, and police officers about his harrowing run-in with Oso One and their journey to another world. While it's difficult to imagine that Higdon's audience, consisting of both loved ones and authority figures, were not at least initially skeptical, this did nothing to prevent the deputies from informing the press and local ufologists about Higdon's wild adventure. Marjorie, however, claimed that she never once doubted the sincerity of her husband's strange tale, later telling reporters from the Star Tribune the following, I believed him because it was him, and because I was out there and saw a lot of different things that went on that night. Although his innards showed a marked upgrading, Higdon's appetite did not return for days, a fact that he attributed to Oso One's miraculous pills, and he grumbled about sharp pains in the base of his skull and neck claiming that he felt as if his body had been treated like an accordion. I feel like I'd been pushed together like this. That's just the way my muscles feel like they were compressed and then yanked apart. After three days of observation, the swiftly recovering hunter was released from the hospital and into the care of his wife and family. Within days of her husband's hospitalization, Marjorie discovered the crushed 7mm bullet hidden in his canteen pouch. Higdon was still at a loss to explain the force which had managed to so thoroughly damage his bullet. So he took the casing to the sheriff's office, and Higdon would say this, I'd never seen anything like it before to compare it to. Soon as I could, I took it to the Carbon County Sheriff's Department, where the officer in charge of ballistics analysis examined it through a microscope. He told me it was from a 7mm Magnum rifle, which is the caliber of my gun. Returning the chunk of metal, he noted that he had never seen a bullet in that shape or condition. The sheriff inspected the warped bullet and claimed that he had never seen its equal. He was convinced that it was impossible to hammer the bullet into its existing shape and felt that the bullet had probably not hit a solid object like a tree or a rock. The copper jacket had been turned inside out and the lead slug was missing. He later wrote, It looks as if it has been turned inside out by a superhuman being. The Aerial Phenomena Research Organization, or APRO, sent metallurgy consultant Dr. Walter Walker to inspect the jacket. After a rigorous examination of the object, 
he testified that it had collided with an exceptionally hard surface. This assertion is not to be underestimated, as a 7mm bullet travels at such a fantastic rate of speed. It would have been impossible to track the casing down, had it not hit something incredibly hard. Much harder than a rock or a tree. In the APRO Bulletin, Volume 23, Number 5, which was published in March 1975, investigators were planning on organizing a search party in order to find the lead slug of the 7mm in the hopes that it might produce additional evidence of what it had impacted against. This is an excerpt from that report. After the snow melts, an attempt will be made to locate the lead slug from the bullet, and hopefully, it will be able to add something to a very puzzling story. Unfortunately, the search party failed to come to fruition, or if it did, their efforts were fruitless, leaving the mangled bullet casing as the only physical evidence in support of Higdon's account. Despite the lack of corroborating proof, on October 29, 1974, the Rollins Daily Times published an account of Higdon's extraordinary experience, and from there, the story spread like wildfire. Like many abductees, Higdon claimed to have only a partial memory of his close encounter of the weird kind. He recalled his bullet hitting the invisible barrier, meeting the alien, and entering the clear cubicle with the elk, but after that his recollections became hazy. Due to their success that the team had with their method in the past, the APRO investigators suggested that the distressed huntsman undergo hypnotic regression in order to reclaim his lost memories and hopefully put himself at ease with the reality of what had happened to him. Higdon agreed, and on November 2nd of 1974, APRO consultant and professor of psychology at the University of Wyoming, Dr. R. Leo Sprinkle, spent over four hours with the Higdons and their children, discussing what had happened, as well as their responses to it. Sprinkle, a trained hypnotist and former UFO skeptic, who had allegedly investigated thousands of alien abduction cases and believed that he himself was a victim, was assisted by MUFON field investigators Rick Kenyon and Robert Nankis. Sprinkle employed the classic pendulum technique in order to elicit hidden information from Higdon, but his efforts were met with disappointment. Over two weeks later, on November 17th, Sprinkle took another crack at it, utilizing alternative hypnotic methods, and this time he was not thwarted. While many modern investigators take an understandably dim view regarding the validity of hypnotic regression, it's important to note that unlike many similar cases, Higdon had a conscious memory of his alien encounter before he was put under. This would seem to lend at least a little credibility to the account that followed. Under hypnosis, Higdon was able to recall his trip to Oso One's home world in step-by-step -step detail. He revealed to all those observing the session that the straw-headed alien and its kin were searching for food and used the earth as a sort of game preserve where they came to hunt and fish. They also wore their black, skin-tight suits to protect them from the rays of our sun and brought the elk back to their planet for breeding purposes. According to Higdon, breeding was also the reason why human beings were brought to this alien world. Higdon was under the impression that the aliens had harvested these primarily young humans in order to use them in some kind of propagation program, and that he did not suit their purpose, due to the fact that in 1965, he had undergone a vasectomy. Maybe this is what they meant when they said that I wasn't any good. I kind of sensed that they wanted young people, he said. 
At the end of their hypnotic session, Sprinkle eased Higdon from his trance, with the instruction that he would retain his memories of Oso One and their expedition, but would no longer fear said recollections. And later, Sprinkle would write the following in his official report on the case. Although the sighting of a single UFO witness often is difficult to evaluate, the indirect evidence supports the tentative conclusion that Carl Higdon is reporting sincerely the events which he experienced. Hopefully further statements from other persons can be obtained to support the basic statement. Higdon, still a nervous wreck about the whole affair, claimed that for weeks following the trip, he was followed by a colossal green light in the sky. Some ufologists speculated that it might have been the extraterrestrials keeping a watch on their quarry, much like modern scientists tracking a tagged bear. Four years later, in September of 1978, Higdon was subjected to what was then known as the most advanced polygraph tests available. The test was presided over by technical consultant for the LAPD, Dr. Greenberg, and his colleague, Dr. Sidney Walter. The scientists asserted that the former hunter was giving a truthful account of what had happened, and Greenberg concluded this, I am forced to admit that something utterly fantastic did happen in this man's life. The test proves it, beyond doubt. The evidence in this strange case is circumstantial at best. There are no corroborating eyewitnesses who saw anything more significant than a few random lights in the night sky, and even the celebrated bullet only shows that it hit something exceptionally hard. Nevertheless, there are more than a few elements above and beyond Higdon's fascinating sketches regarding this case that have a way of nagging on even the most skeptical of minds. The first thing that comes to mind is how did the permanent scars on the inside of Higdon's lungs simply vanish without a trace? Investigators claim to have seen them before and after the x-rays that confirmed this seemingly miraculous healing process, which left doctors baffled. If this curative process was not instigated by the alien visitor, then what might have been responsible for the cure? The second factor that lends credibility to the hunter's account is the state in which the company truck was discovered by his rescuers. If reports are to be believed, then there is simply no way Higdon could have moved the vehicle to the place where it was discovered without the aid of a military helicopter. Of course, there's always the possibility that Higdon made up the whole tale after he got the company truck stuck while playing hooky from work, but I find this theory to not make a whole lot of sense. Lastly, who in their right mind would subject themselves to that kind of public scrutiny and ridicule that invariably follows a report of this nature? Add to this the undeniable fact that Higdon was still well-liked and respected by his neighbors, bosses, and co-workers. Not to mention the effort that would have been involved in creating the performance that he would have had to put over on his wife and rescue team in the forest. Not to mention the nurses, doctors, police, and press in the hospital. And it becomes clear that this working-class Wyoming man was either one of the greatest actors of the 20th century, or very likely the victim of a very bizarre episode. Regardless of whether this was a genuine encounter, an elaborate hoax, or just the frightful dream of a man who had taken a nasty spill and was suffering from a concussion, one overwhelming fact still remains. If Carl Higdon had it to do all over again, he would not have stopped and helped those strangers fix their van. Instead, he would have continued on to McCarthy Canyon, where he would have never met a friendly, jawless, drill-handed alien named Oso One. The oil man has maintained the veracity of his story throughout his life, 
and is the first to admit that his trip is a difficult pill to swallow, even for him. I'd like to think it was just a nightmare, except I know it was real. I've tried to shake my mind clear of all thoughts pertaining to what took place, but frankly, that's totally out of the question at this point. Just months after his abduction, Higdon went on to say this about the incident at Medicine Bow National Forest. Though I remain apprehensive over the events of last October, I firmly believe the American public is brave enough to accept the truth about such matters. Of course, I wish the whole episode hadn't occurred, but since it did, I don't see any reason to keep it a secret. Some folks may think I've gone off my rocker, but anyone who knows me can tell you that I'm not making any of this up. People seem to accept it now. I'm being as truthful as I can be. This really happened. So what do you think? Are there rational explanations to tonight's tales? Or are there really strange beings visiting us from far-off worlds? I'll let you be the judge. If you've had a close encounter with someone or something from another world, I'd like to hear about it. If you've witnessed something that you can't explain and would like to have your story shared on the podcast, please contact me at paranormalmysteriespodcast at gmail.com or visit us at paranormalmysteriespodcast.com and click on the Tell Your Story link. All of our contact information can be found in the show notes. Until next time, I hope you all have a great beginning to your week, and we'll see you back here on Wednesday with our next episode. From all of us at Paranormal Mysteries, thank you for listening, and remember, don't wait for the unknown to come to you. Get out there and find it. It's true that some things change as we get older, but if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause, and MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 
91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com.